Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm your host, Scott Livingston, and this is where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page, Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to empower and inspire a community of people who take every opportunity to live a high-performing life. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is a method and language of integrated practice that brings the worlds of therapy and conditioning together and helps them become more powerful and more practical. If you live in one or both of these worlds or you use the services of a therapist or conditioning coach, you know that sometimes they don't see eye to eye. They aren't on the same page. Reconditioning provides a time-tested process for aligning these two worlds and creating impactful solutions to performance problems. And now the entire approach is available for you to digest online from the comfort of your own home. Follow them at ReconditioningHQ on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or become a member of their Facebook Reconditioning HQ Revolution community and join the Reconditioning Revolution. Most recently, Matrix Fitness Canada partnered with Playball Academy Canada in Kitchener, Ontario to create the Matrix Conditioning Centre. The Matrix Conditioning Centre within the facility provides PBA athletes and coaches access to the best and most current conditioning tools to support their development. By combining the Matrix research on product usage with customized needs of the coaches, simple performance metrics are being developed in a body-friendly and progressive way. It is a hybrid model combining high-performance metric analysis with coach-friendly opportunities. Speed training, sprint mechanics, coaching, metabolic conditioning, warm-up and cool-down are all some of the examples of how these tools are being used. Playball Academy Canada was established in 2014 and has developed into one of the premier indoor baseball training facilities in the country. From grassroots player and skill development to the pro level, the facility and its programming continue to evolve and grow. Matrix Fitness is a global brand of fitness equipment that serves exercisers and operators from all corners of the globe. When it comes to sport performance, Matrix Portfolio continues to grow through its partnership with amateur and professional sports organizations globally. To get more information on how Matrix Fitness can customize something for your team, contact Matrix directly at greg.lawler at matrixfitness.com and tell them leave your mark sent you. How would you like to increase your athletic performance and reduce your risk of injury? If this sounds good to you, please allow me to introduce you to the all-new Isofit MSK. The multi-patented Isofit MSK is the world's first full-body portable isometric strength training device. Since launching in November 2020, the Isofit MSK is now helping thousands of people across 18 countries live pain-free, high-performing lifestyles. Whether your goal is to enhance muscle strength and endurance, improve neuromuscular potentiation, strengthen tendons and bones, or enhance cardiovascular performance, the Isofit MSK does it all. To learn more about the Isofit MSK, please visit www.isofitmsk.ca. That's isofit with a P-H-I-T, msk.ca. Remember to use the discount code IHPS at check out to save yourself $250 per unit. The Isofit MSK is proudly made in Canada. All right. Welcome, welcome everybody to Leave Your Mark and uh, Performance Conversations uh, with Dom and Scott back on the internet avec mon chum de Québec, uh, Dom Gauthier. How you Bonjour, been, Scotty. <laughs> How was your faint semaine? Uh, we are in the Victoria Day weekend. You had a good time? Yeah, it's been a good long weekend. We've been doing a lot of activities. I mean, outdoors, you know, it's, uh, it's the, you know, with COVID, we've been quite limited, obviously, with what we can do. Some provinces more, some provinces less. Like, I think I'm, I'm in BC right now where measures have been a lot uh, less restrictive. But, um, you know, we moved here because we love the outdoor. So, to be mm-hmm. honest, for us, it didn't change much. So, we always bring our kids whether it's a hike or a mountain bike ride and, you know, probably similar to what you're doing in, in Tremblant. That's why you moved there as well. Right. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. with that, I don't feel like, you know, activity wise, we've missed much with, with COVID. So we're pretty lucky. So, you know, that was a nice long weekend here. 
and uh, you know keeping the kids active and the kids keep us active as well so it's it's not you know long weekends it's not a, a recovery when you have two young kids as i'm sure you remember <laughs> i do indeed well we did the same we did a lot of uh, outdoor stuff this weekend had a nice bike ride yesterday our daughter gretchen's getting to the age where she can uh, actually ride a road bike so we went on the petit mm. train de now and went for a nice uh, 50k bike ride with some friends which was pretty fun is, is it crazy busy because it was busy this weekend yeah. else you got to watch uh, you got to watch and have the kids watch where they're going and stuff and to your point you know there's still lots of covid restrictions all those things are starting the screws are starting mm-hmm. to loosen a little bit it was actually it's funny where we're planning on going with our conversation actually ignites off of uh, an interesting uh, thing i recognized this weekend watching the highlights of the pga tour and phil mickelson's victory and i see these hordes of human beings like it was it was like Okay, I'm, what's this is surreal? Like I'm I'm in lockdown. I can't go to a restaurant right now, and people are literally like surrounding this guy. No masks, cops around him with no masks, and it's not even a judgment. It's just like okay, what, what kind of universe am I living in? It was bizarre, totally, and. You know, a year ago, exactly, we kind of pointed the fingers at the U.S., you know, a little bit, laughing at them because uh, we were in a much better situation. And yeah. now, I mean, I mean, seeing what we've seen, I assume they're in a better situation. I hope like, so. <laughs> <laughs> or else it's going to be an interesting few weeks ahead. But no, I think, yeah, it was quite something to see. And it's how refreshing it was, too, right, for us to see that normality coming back at sporting events, especially where there's so much emotion because what we've seen so far, whether it's the NFL, the NHL, NBA, and all these big sport and tennis to put them in there. Like there, there hasn't been that kind of frenzy, right? It was the first time we saw that yeah. fanatic frenzy, which is so cool. And that's what, that's what for me is so key in sport. It's yeah, the performance itself for sure. But like you need that energy around to make it that more that much more special. Like we, mm-hmm. we've all, you know, shed a few more tears this weekend because of the crowd. Like if he had been alone in the middle of the field, yeah, when his wife comes to him, well, it would have been emotional, but nothing like that. Which worries me for Tokyo, Scott, like for the Olympics, right? Like it, it, there won't be. Well, first of all, they say now there would be maybe Japanese spectators only, which I'm hearing that actually there will be no spectators, right? Really? So, so all these, uh, you know, stories and emotions will be, will be faded a little bit for sure. Like, I think the performances will be fine. I think, you know, I've seen how people are training right now. Athletes are ready. They're ready even to compete with no, you know, noise, no crowd, um, but for us, you know, fans who will be watching, it will be kind of weird to see, you know, I have this image in mind after the 100 meter dash, like seeing whoever will win with its flag by himself in a stadium. <clears throat> right. It's, uh, yeah. it's kind of no, weird. I remember, watching to think the, of. Yeah. I remember watching the first, the um, Stanley Cup series last year, and it was kind of the first go round of this, you know, bizarre sort of playing you know, mm-hmm. Stanley Cup championship games in front of no crowd. And I wondered what it was like for the players to experience that. Or on one side, I think, you know, it's probably more like you said, it probably affects us, the fans, more than it does the actual players. The players are playing their game and there's an intensity that they have to sort of pick up and live with. And, you know, so I don't know whether it changes. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, you you competed at the highest levels. What was the difference when there was a crowd or there wasn't a crowd? Did it change the way you... And that's a very good example to to reflect on because there's many places we would go in Europe in in the sport of freestyle skiing where there'd be like, you know, pretty much only the people in the industry, the people connected to the team and a few, you know, local spectators. And then there would be places like in Deer Valley, Utah, which, you know, would have the biggest crowd with, you know, sometimes six, seven thousand people. And Man, like your heartbeat is pumping faster. Everything, but it is the actual run. So the performance itself much better. I, I would say no. I don't think so. I, I think it causes more, you know, excitement and therefore more people blowing up because you're just over, you know, you're jacked up and all of that. And we're not used to it, right? It's not like our pro friends who have like 42 games with 
you know, stands filled with 20,000 people. They're used to it. I'm sure it affects them, like, but not as much as for us. You know, Olympic athletes, we're not used to that. Like you compete in front of small crowds and then suddenly you show up at a big event and like this, this is something we prepare most of the athletes with before the Olympics, when we work with their mental performance coaches, that's one thing, the main thing they work on is to Mm -hmm. be prepared for when they're going to announce your name, you're going to hear and feel a crowd like you've never felt before. Um, so does it impact? Yes, but I think we've, we're all preparing for that. And at the same time right now, the athletes are preparing for no noise, right? So I think ultimately the performances will be, will be the same. It's just the show that, that, that will be yeah. different. And to your point with the NHL, I thought about it as well. Well, at least you have a team to high five and hug and celebrate and go in the room and drink champagne with, <laughs> you know, now yeah. the, like in the, it's mainly individual sports at the Olympics. So team sports, I'm less worried about, but definitely again, to come back to my hundred meter guy who will be by himself with his coach, maybe that will be able to run beside him and give him a hug. That, that will be it. Uh, that would be, yeah. Crowds, it's an interesting conversation actually around crowds, crowd benefit, crowd negativity. Like what, like I was thinking yesterday watching, uh, when I was watching the highlights of Phil, um, like, you're, you're walking up the 18th and you've got this crowd around you and then they sort of push back and the two guys have to, sh- you know, hit their shots. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I can't hit a shot on, I mean, I'm not, obviously not a pro, but I mean, no. can you imagine, can you imagine oh. teeing off with all these people around you? And as soon as you hit the ball, it's like, ah! you're like, what? <laughs> Amazing. Like, Oh yeah. Well, I think, in, in these sports, golf and, and tennis, like, I think it's cool. They're, they're, they're starting to loosen up a little bit on some of the events where they kind of allowed the crowd and that. I just think it's, yeah, it makes it that much more exciting. But to your point, woo, trying to focus on your shot when you don't, and, and especially, I don't know, like, you know, you'd be like looking at your ball for the drive or whatever. And I, I don't know, for me, I would, I would, something in my mind would come, would be like, what if like an idiot starts screaming right now? You know, like you think of, you expect the unexpected, <laughs> and, but these guys, again, that's why they, they are where they are. And yeah. uh, they're so good at blocking all of that. Yeah. And well, mental I... performance, we could do a full, or we will do a full show on that where it's, you know, it came along like so far now, the last 15, 20 years. Um, I can imagine in golf, I'm not involved with any golfer, but I, I would be curious actually to see how they manage it. Because to me, golf, it's, it's the ultimate of, yeah, yeah. of sports psychology, the pressure of it because of the length of the event where you can screw up for one or two holes and then you need to carry on. And we have, we've all experienced it, right? Like, I mean, I, I used to use golf as a mental preparation for my sport right and Mm. trying to deal with those ups and downs and and not projecting yourself into the future which we all do when we play golf oh this is for my birthday oh this is for my eagle and then you start shaking and all of that right um golf is something where i would like to do more of a research on as far as how these guys are now preparing versus you know the jack nicholas years yeah, well, it's interesting. The, the, you know, we're going to start unpacking a little bit about that longevity piece. But to your point, like the um, mental preparation has changed so much. But there's two sports that I think are the hardest from that perspective. One is golf and the other one's tennis. And I remember reading Andre Agassi's book and his, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know if you rip, read yep, Open, a great yeah. book, and talking just about, you know, the ebb and flow of the game and you being out there by yourself against another person. And, you, you know, you've got to, you start to react to what they're doing and you're not playing your best game. And then all of a sudden you're playing your best game and then all something turns and all this negative conversation. Oh my God, it's got to be just mm-hmm. over the top crazy <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, like think, if, if netflix could come up with something where you can listen to someone's brain, brain. 
as this is all happening, the, the shit that goes through their mind must be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Well, the thing I've always said to people have said to me, you know, what's it, what's it like, or what do you notice about, you know, the athletes at the top of their game and what differentiates them and things. And I've, I've said to people, you don't understand how good a pro is in anything like how good they are technically. Like if you take the, the hundred pros on the, on the golf, on, on, you know, top hundred golfers, top hundred tennis players, and you go out with them, the things they can do with a ball where they can play, like a tennis player can literally hit a ball, same place, same spot over and over and over again with the same mm-hmm. spin, change the spin, play with it. Same with thing with a golfer. If you go out in a range with one of these pros, they can a hundred, they can take their nine iron out and crank a one twenty over and over again, hit the same spot, put backspin on it, forespin, all this stuff. The differentiator when you get to the top guys is how they manage that mm-hmm. stress because they can all hit a golf ball like nobody's business. They can all yeah. put it wherever they want to. It's whether they actually do it when all that pressure arrives on them and they're thinking, you know, where's so-and-so and And they hear they're at the masters and they're on the 16th and the guy on the 15th just hits a birdie and everybody goes, and they hear that and they're about to make their shot. And you like, those are the moments where you got to buckle down, you know? So cool. (laughs) Man. So, so we yeah, that would yeah, fill right this weekend. Yeah. That's, I think That's we need crazy. to talk about that. Fifth, almost 51. This guy wins a f- oldest winner of a major. And to your point, you, you reached out to me to say what, what we can talk about in this longevity thing. And to sort of set the table on that, I just did a quick sort of research piece. So we've got, you know, Phil just winning that PG at 51. You got Patrick Marlowe, who's 41 years old, who just, uh, you know, just is played a crazy number of seasons. Joe Thornton playing for the Toronto Maple Leafs. He's 41. Mm-hmm. Tom Brady just won a Super Bowl at 43. Yeah. Drew Brees just retired at 42. We got uh, we have our own Eric Gay who won a world yep. championship at 36 years old. The only guy to do that. Zdeno Chara is 44, still playing. Just retired this yeah. weekend, right, I guess? Yeah, I think so. Federer is 39. Serena is 39. So... In your opinion, what's going on? What's going on? <laughs> or, yeah, what, what were we doing wrong before, too? That raises the question, right? Like, how were we... I mean, the science, and I'll turn that discussion a lot to you today, Scott, because you're, you're the expert at that, and I think this is where where the difference maker is. Yes, you know, the mental preparation and what we talked about, but I'm, I'm not sure mental preparation, you know, impacts longevity that much. It for sure does a bit because you can prevent injuries uh, with mental preparation and you can overcome them with mental preparation. But I think it's reading to the physical side of things, the nutritional side of things, the science basically, right? That, mm-hmm. that goes behind now that I've seen firsthand from, you know, having been a competitor in the 90s and then the early, you know, 2000, I was a coach. And seeing the, the evolution of this and seeing guys like you and so many other strength and conditioning specialists that brought such a more, like, um, uh, how would I say, like, purposeful approach to what they do. But in regards to the sports and the demands, rather than being very generic and, okay, mm-hmm. let's make these guys stronger and faster. Mm-hmm. Okay, no, no, wait, like everybody is so different, right? The physiology of everyone, the way they react to training, the way they react to nutrition, and then what are the demands of their sports and what are the demands of, you know, where they play within that sport, where, you know, their weaknesses, strain, all of that, of course. But I found that it's crazy. And I would like to hear from you too, the last 10 years, because I haven't been as connected as I was the previous 10 years. So between mm-hmm. 2000 and 2010, I've seen what you've done. And I'm convinced that this had a major impact on all of the athletes that I worked with in a very risky sport of freestyle skiing. They've all went through their careers with, you know, barely in injuries. Now, it didn't make them champion in freestyle skiing at 35 years old. They all got to a point where with such a high impact sport, and risky sport, your mind starts to be like, okay, is, is, is it worth all these risks to keep going at that? Mm-hmm. Uh, unlike, you know, playing basketball where you'll, you'll play and push as far as you can if you want to. Um, although I could put football in there, a very risky, dangerous sport in hockey, but they managed to do so. And I think for us, we reach a point 
in these acrobatic sport where there's some something else that comes into play here that will at one point defy the longevity will, will be pretty much impossible but mm-hmm. you know like the training you've done and I'm, i'd like to hear from you now like if you know this is something you had in mind when you brought you know that totally new approach um yes you wanted performance but ultimately i assume the health and the longevity of the athlete was probably the center of what you were doing as well. It was not just about being stronger, faster, and jump higher kind of thing, right? The reconditioning experience is completely virtual. We've taken our signature courses, R1 Foundations, and R2 Designs, and loaded them onto an online platform. We combine this recorded video experience with live Zoom labs to bring all the principles and practices of reconditioning to life through applied case study. In turn, you walk away with how to best use this language of common practice to bring the worlds of therapy and performance together in one powerful approach that creates lasting change in your client's performance. And we want to see you thrive. So we've built a powerful eight-week mentorship program so you can own the information you've learned in a way that aligns with your working environment. We want you to be the human performance professional everyone wants to work with. Last but not least, we believe that success in life begins with the right mindset. We know that the statistics for burnout in human performance are significant and that many of our colleagues face questions every day about personal fulfillment and living their best life. This is why we have a landmark program for human performance professionals called Empower You. This program is all about crafting your best life, living purposefully, and enjoying the fruits of your impassioned labor. Our next one starts May 15th. For more information about our courses or our process, please visit us at reconditioninghq.com or feel free to reach out to us directly on any of our social networks. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I attribute um, the, I call it success of my career on the fact that I was both a therapist and strength conditioning coach. So I think I always had mm-hmm. a bit of a, and a perspective on athlete resiliency and the efficiency effectiveness side of the coin, which uh, I think that no, no, no push on my brethren in the strength conditioning industry. Cause I grew up in that and I played football, wanted to lift as much as I could, you know, mm-hmm. bench press squat, all the things that I did when I was younger before I became a therapist and stuff, which I probably still pay for now. But um, you know, I think there's this recognition that, Uh, you know, if you use the uh, car analogy, there used to be sort of this idea of how much horsepower can we put in the engine? You know, how, how big a tranny can we build and run this car as hard as it can go? And I think over time, there's been this recognition that there's, there needs to be as much effort put into how you break the car, slow it down, how you, how the frame is modified by changing the horsepower, all these different things. And, you know, you see that in the manifestation of say F1 cars now, you know, there's all the, all the engineering that goes into an F1 comparatively speaking to maybe 35 years ago where, you know, you just put this car, put the tires on and ran this puppy and you would fix what was broken kind of thing. It's the same thing, I think, from an athlete resiliency standpoint. And there's this recognition. It was, it's funny. um, There's an organization called TPI in the States, Titleist Performance Institute, and they have done a lot of research around golf performance. And what they did was they started this performance Institute. It was two guys guys one was a was a pro a golf pro and the other guy was a chiropractor with a an exercise sort of viewpoint as well greg rose mm-hmm. and they went to titleist and they said look um we know that you know x number of recreational golfers lose a certain number of balls per round of golf i think it's like four balls they lose per golf golf round okay so technically if you get golfers to play for more years they're going to lose more balls so titleist <laughs> is going to sell them more balls make more money right so they basically said to him look you want to sell more balls to the consumer keep them playing longer we have an idea for keeping them playing longer and what they did was they took a sport which is relatively easily analyzed because the golf swing remains relatively consistent it'll change club head etc and what you're using but and position on terrain but in general comparatively speaking to what you did or football mm-hmm. you know there's less less factors to manage so they looked at they really looked at the sport and they took three domains of practice the the pro the, the conditioning professional and the therapist professional and they put them in a room and they sort of said okay pro tell us tell us what's mechanically going on when somebody slices a ball 
tell us what they're doing when they're hooking a ball, when they're, you know, not getting enough length on it, when they're short checking their, their stroke, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so yeah. the pro would sort of say it from the pros language perspective. Mm-hmm. And then the performance, then the therapists would say what, you know, what might be missing that would change that pattern. And then the conditioning person would look at, well, what, what might be def- deficit oriented in terms of force and things like that. And so when they started putting their whole brain together, they started to recognize that there are some places where the force proposition had to change. There were some places where the, the mechanics had to change, et cetera, et cetera, to get a better stroke. And effectively, when you get a better stroke, you put less stress on the system, right? So now you're banging yeah. it up less worse and and so that was that's the genesis of kind of the same mindset i have towards movement which is you know i've been lucky enough partly because of some of the work that we've done together in b210 or my work in professional hockey to work with some really elite athletes so when a jan heil comes to me or an alex billado comes to me they're already extremely talented athletes my mind is how can I keep them doing what they need to do as consistently as possible? So for me, like when Jen's, when Jen was competing, you know, she can win a race on any given day, but the problem is if on any given day, she's sitting with a, an ice pack on her knee instead of skiing, Mm -hmm. then she's not competing. She can't win a race when she's injured. Right. So how can I keep her from being injured? Now the, viewpoint is a little bit different when you're developing when you've got development athletes and i think this is sometimes where things get mixed up we had this conversation with the helen and rian about athlete development and stuff in the previous ones that we did but what i do professionally isn't what necessarily should be done with a 14 year old or a 15 year old what you need to be doing is developing a better athlete that has a really great platform of capacity and then you start to make it a little bit more specifically designed towards the you know the perfect mm-hmm. freestyle skier alpine skier or whatever um but to but you to take, tailor it completely yeah, to the need yeah. yeah and i think to take the 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 and not go on for too long because i'm interested in your viewpoint on a couple of things too is is i think what's changed a lot is this recognition that it's it's still important to have power speed all the big you know mm-hmm. force components of the game but you need to also have all the other things that underpin it for the health and well-being of the athlete and then how they recuperate how they prepare all that stuff goes into making a better a better athlete uh, and that's what you have as a better athlete package but i would turn it back to you and say you know when you your your athletic career was spanned sort of through the 90s when you mm-hmm. look back at that time what what would what did you learn about hmm. what you did that you oh. didn't do that you would have done differently now if you were skiing back then? Yeah, and that's why I see a big clash between what was happening in the 90s and then the more, you know, scientific approach, I would say, and therapeutical approach to training than when, you know, I was there in the 90s, you know, in, in very simple terms, like we were trained and training because it's not always what we were told. We were, you know, doing a lot by ourselves, but in our mind, we've heard so much like, if you're stronger, if you train harder, you're, you're going to win. That was your key to success, right? Train harder, do more. Well, when you have guys like myself and many others who are very, very self-motivated, <laughs> you know, very obsessive with their training and, you know, we'll just push until you can't push and we'll run until you puke and all these things. Like, in my mind, it was my key to success. How stupid is that, right? Like, if, if it was just about training harder to be the best in the world, that's something. It, mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be pretty simple. I, I, I could do that, right? And then what happened for me was we were comparing ourselves with other sports. And then, you know, oh, these guys are much bigger. They're stronger. But, you know, I'm going to show them that I'm an athlete as well. I'm not just an acrobat. I'm an athlete. And I'm going to be better to them than them at leg press or things like that. My legs were so freaking big and powerful (laughs) in a sport where I needed more agility, you know, and quickness and balance and all of that. Like Mm -hmm. my program was not adapted. I was just told be stronger. I have bigger legs, stronger legs. You're going to ski faster. Well, this Mm. is completely wrong. And that led to probably me blowing my knee a few Mm -hmm. times, you know, my, Mm -hmm. I had seven knee operation on my, on my right knee. So, 
one led to the other, but still, every time I would come back, it was about like building strength and power. And, you know, a, a good friend of mine, Jean-Luc Brassard, who won in the Olympics in 94, I mean, he's one of the most successful guy in our sport. He was healthy, healthy until, you know, we started to train to become stronger. And then he blew his knee as well at that point. I'm sure it's 100% related. He took so much weight one summer, even his shoulder, his arms and his legs, like everything became too big. And the power of Jean-Luc was his agility, his finesse, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and if someone, I, kind of like a Michael Kingsbury, like it, it's the finesse of Michael. It's not about making him like a monster that goes down moguls, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's the big difference I've seen, uh, that there was no, you know, thoughtful approach to adapt the needs, you know, with, you know, the, the individual and then to the sport. And what marked me and what you were doing when you started to work with the athletes, and I'd like to see and hear if that changes well, maybe in the last 10 years, but what the big difference from my experience in the 90s to training and then the early 2000 when I was a coach was how much body weight exercises became almost like, you know, the, the big, big, big majority of a training program. Like we dropped the weights a lot and it was all about balance, proprioception, um, again, speed, agility, more than just building on weight. So to me, that was the main thing from looking from the outside. Is there anything that changed, you know, since again, maybe like early 2000 to 2010 versus 2010 to now in the last few years, mm-hmm, like we, mm-hmm. we see a lot of stuff pop up on so much now on social media. There's like, there seems to be like thousands of new trainer every day coming up with different things. But, um, as the essence change or is just more like, the toys that are coming, you know, when they're trying to sell us everything so that we can train like the pros kind of thing. Well, I think there's two or three different um, elements of that. You know, in any, in anything that is innovative and we're in an innovative industry, there are people are sort of pushing the ceiling. And so you have what I would call these specialists that sort of drive new approaches and, Mm -hmm. and, and usually in, in the performance milieu, what would happen is you would have somebody who is an expert in a particular element of conditioning. So if I use hockey as an example, because I worked in it and sort of saw it, it grow yeah. in the in the 80s, you know, the, the NHL was getting it and it, their ass handed to them by the Russians a few times. And so what they started doing was assessing the physical fitness. And what they realized was most hockey players did very little offseason preparation, came to camp and got into shape, play mm-hmm. hockey. And the Russians were always in great shape. So when they met in the summer, the guys, the Canadian guys wouldn't be as in good a shape. And by the time they got in enough shape to beat the Russians, the Russians had already beaten them at certain points or yeah, were yeah, really yeah. taking them to task. So what you saw in hockey was that the specialists in cardiovascular conditioning came in. And so there was this drive in the 80s and early 90s to... Uh, you know, everybody rode the bike and they were yeah. conditioned, conditioned, conditioned. The VO2 maxes went up. But what people started to realize was you were making your hockey players slower, in essence, by working that. Hmm. that there was a ceiling of ne- necessity and then the rest of it was superfluous. So yeah. I found in my time, like uh, if you had, you know, the average on most of my teams was a 58 VO2. You know, you could have a 68, but it didn't really change the game. And in fact, in a game like hockey, if you had a 68 VO2, but you didn't skate very well, it didn't really matter. So if you yeah. didn't have the the technique, to the physiology, exactly. Mm-hmm. Same thing you saw in strength. Like you saw a lot of, in the 90s, a lot of strength training was brought into hockey. And in your sport, probably not dissimilarly. And the specialists who had driven strength training were first your specialist sports like bodybuilding, powerlifting, Olympic. Mm-hmm. So those were the kind of derivatives that everybody was using through the 70s and 80s to yeah. you know train football players. But then football, because it was such a driver of conditioning, became where your, your knowledgeable people came for football. So like when I went down to interview for my job with the Islanders, I was the only guy out of 16 people who was trained as a strength coach, but could skate. The rest of the guys were all football strength coaches. Oh yeah. So what you saw in hockey through the nineties was a lot of bigger, faster, stronger, Football is a very relatively linear sport. Mm-hmm. You do have change of direction, but it's change off a line. You don't turn around and, and completely change yeah. direction, spin yeah. on, et cetera. And, and it's very force-oriented, size-oriented, et cetera. Hockey's not the same. It's a skills game. It's multidirectional. You're on a blade, all this kind of stuff. So 
all of a sudden these guys made these guys bigger, faster, stronger. To your point, what you started to see was ab tears. People were ripping their abdominal walls apart with all the force that they were creating. So to your point, you put, you create so much force, but you're not necessarily regulating the force. So you've got this massive quad that's pulling on your knee. You hit a, you hit a bump the wrong way and it literally blows your ACL because of the force you're creating. And we started to see that in golf. So, you know, in golf, Tiger Woods. That's right. He starts training and he starts training. Plus your money's like a bodybuilder. And so you start to see him get back injury, blows his ACL out golfing. How do you blow your ACL out (laughs) golfing? Because you're creating too much torque, right? So you saw all that stuff through the 90s to 2000s. What you've seen in the last 10 years is guys like myself who were you know, relative innovators on the practice of sort of being more efficient and effective and not necessarily building horsepower, but acknowledging horsepower, but also acknowledging how you slow things down, how, et cetera. That started propagating into the game more and more and more of preparation. And so that's why you see guys like Tom Brady playing for as long as he's played. Mm-hmm. Why, why a Patrick Marlowe? Why a Phil Mickelson is healthy at this point? Because people are training people not just to perform better, but to perform longer. Like So there is a... There is a what is it return on ROI? What's the return on investment? So if my squats 445, does the workload to get it to 465 meet the the value or should I be working on something else over here? Spending more time on my recovery or whatever. And the only other, the other part of that or summit of that or two parts of it is one is technology and the other one is, you know, objective assessment. So you have the technology which marries that a little bit. And that's what you're seeing now is, again, a lot of technology being brought to the table, but not so many people who actually recognize and understand its value proposition when it should be used, when it shouldn't be used. So you've seen some Mm. people pushing back in pro sports around, you know, whether it's GPS technology and load monitoring around, you know, it being used as a hammer. Oh, the guy's, the guy didn't do enough work and practice. We're going to bag skate him or whatever. And so the guys who are at that level now are trying to marry this, you know, use of that to manage load. So we're not blowing people up versus the coaches using it to, you know, test the the metal of the athlete, you know? So that's a big discussion point you see a lot now and you see a lot of tests, you know, the testing, the objective measures, like my good friend, Matt Jordan, you know, is very focused on, you know, what do you see when you, when you change something, do you actually see a, an objective change and is it the objective change you're trying to, to do and see? And so those technologies are coming to the table. So that's the thing that's, you're seeing more in sport now that's kind of supporting and, or, you know, creating some stress in the game as well. So, and do you use a lot of technology now? Like for the last 10 years, have you gone in and out of it a bit or? I don't consider myself a big, uh, I think my career has depreciated as you well know, in terms of how many consults and how much work I do with athletes now. So I kind of depend on, the people I work with who support these athletes laterally doing the testing. And I say, okay, what are you looking for? What, mm-hmm. what do you want to see change? How can I then affect that change or modify that change, et cetera. So, you know, uh, I don't use it as much as may, maybe some of my brethren who are 10 or 15 years younger than me. Um, but mo- I su- do, certainly do see the value proposition of these things, whether it's, you know, being able to understand the velocity of an exercise or the time that somebody rests on the ground or the forces that they're creating into the ground, uh, you know, all those things I think are really powerful um, measures of your success and whether you're changing what you want to change. Um and so, it, again, it, it comes down to, you know, a typical thing you'll see in, uh, in like, you see um, uh, force plates, you know, and so you, they have these mobile force plates, and it's not something I use a lot of, but I know guys who use them a lot, and one of the big... Um, 
things that often happens is people will bring this technology in, but then they don't um, they don't make sure it's it's reset and validated, and and that they've they've actually made sure that from when they moved the force plate over there that everything was recalibrated, and you're actually getting you're actually measuring what you say you're measuring. Mm-hmm. So when you're using these technologies, they you know you have to also pay attention to the validity, reliability, repeatability of the things that you're doing. So you're actually measuring what you're testing versus I got this new fangly toy, but I'm not really doing it. So that has become a bit of a sticking point for some of the guys who yeah. do use it and some of the guys who misuse it. So there seems to be a bit of a return of the pendulum again on that front. Am I, am I right in saying this? Like yeah. where it went so far, technology, 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 maybe like five, six, seven years ago. Mm-hmm. And now you're seeing, well, okay, well, there's, you know, there's the art form that, needs to take place where yeah. they're really good, whether they're, you know, therapist, training and conditioning specialist or physiologist, where data is data and at one point, right? <laughs> There's still much room for human here because mm-hmm. we're dealing with human, right? Mm-hmm. And as we've talked about in the earlier shows, right, the importance of communication and reading and looking somebody in the eyes when you're going to ask for that next exercise, is it the right thing to do to ask for it now or, or, or the day should be over. Mm-hmm. And one word you just mentioned a few minutes ago was the word rest. And to me, that's another element that must be contributing greatly to the longevity of these players and athletes where before, again, it was more about doing more, more, more. That's the only way to get better at something. Well, now we're hearing more and more you know, the importance in planning that rest, that recovery, that nap, you know, and that there's no doubt in my mind that will contribute to not only better performances, but people will be able to play the game, be top athletes for much longer periods as, you know, we get a bit older, maybe we need more rest Mm -hmm. and train less because Mm -hmm. we've got all that experience that came and that will never go away. The, The bag will only get bigger, but your bag is so big with that experience in it. Now maybe you don't need to play as much. Mm-hmm. Maybe you don't need to skate as much. Maybe you don't need to do, you know, put your skis on as much. You do other things and you rest and mm-hmm. you sleep. Man, like sleep is so important. And it's such a, a difficult thing for athletes to sleep. You know, during the Olympic years, I know like most athletes we work with, suddenly their sleep patterns change and because they're stressed. All they think about is the Olympics coming and that. And and I know you've worked in hockey and it's a well-known thing, right? That sleeping is a problem with travel and all of this. But I think now we have so, so much more, we value it much more. The act of doing nothing, <laughs> nothing, you know, is so good to then, you know, do what you do better and longer, basically. Yeah, well, you make a great point. And at the same time, um, I would say to you that, you know, there's these pendulums of, going back to that point of you specialize, you try, you innovate, and then you see what the reaction is. And so we've had over the last, I think, six to eight years, a real push on the recovery side of things. But there's also been a recognition as an example, like there was a lot of research done around rapid cooling of, of muscles post post training to help recovery of the mm-hmm. of the the cells and the tissue and stuff but there's been more recent research now that they're finding that if you do that like the the idea of a training stress is to cause disruption that the system then rec- adapts to and reco- like has its own self recovery to yeah. allow it to reach another threshold of capacity like an immune system kind yeah, of thing yeah but if you come in and you kind of dampen all that reactivity with your ice bath or your recuperative stress strategy, you actually potentially dampen that improvement. So there's this little bit no, of... No, 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 Scotty, of- all that time in ice bats that we've been... <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Telling oh. you. So there's this yin and yang on oh. what, when, why, how much, how often. Uh-huh. You know, those those are the big strategic questions now is, you know, what what is the best use of these technologies? What's the best use of these strategies? When is the when is it best incorporated? Is there too much sleep? Can you nap too much? Can you oh, you know okay. what are the efficient going. and effective things for people? And I think that's that's the key that I've kind of recognized more and more, <laughs> always kind of believe in but every individual is different so your process there's a process of experimentation you have to go through as an athlete uh, or a coach coaching athletes to recognize what 
fosters greatest success in your athlete. And it's the, the tracking and the long-term assessment of those things that's the key. The mistake that gets made with a lot of technology whether it's testing your blood, whether it's, you know, using RPE for uh, your, you know, training sessions or rating of perceived exertion, whether it's using a, a, you know, certain particular test to see whether somebody's, you know, force proposition is different today is are you doing it consistently and not making any momentary changes based on what you see on the radar screen today but are you assessing Mm -hmm. it over time and then reflecting back and saying okay during this time i wanted to create this result as a coach so i wanted to create this result and then when i look at the data this result happened. Oh, maybe that was too much. So the next time you do it, you try it, and, and then you see that you get the result you want. Okay, well, that's the right timing, right dose, right place. And so it requires that yin and yang. And so this, to me, is the art of the using the sports science computer. So if you're a coach, mm-hmm. you're a sports science. Like, we saw the advent over the last 30 years of the sport. I call it the sports science computer. So you got your app with the the, the mental prep, the strength coach, the physical therapist, the, all these things and you got this great computer in front of you but the problem was a lot of coaches were only comfortable using words so they went over and they only used this or they only used that and so over time we've gotten them using these things more and more but then there tends to be a little bit of a strategic like overuse of something they're comfortable with and so now what you're seeing and this brings us to our new strata of what the world is is you're starting to see more performance integration environments and we were part of building those in b210 is how do you bring a group of people together and recognize where the strength coach needs to lead right now and where the coach needs to lead right now and where the therapist needs to lead right now and who moves in what direction when and how and when do we bring this in and when do we bring that in that's that's the new um you know the new environment that we're looking at now Matrix Fitness is a global brand of exercise equipment managed locally in the countries it serves. In Canada, Matrix Fitness has 56 employees, four offices, a technical support team across Canada covering all regions and serving some of the biggest fitness and hospitality brands in your community. In 2021, Matrix will celebrate its 20th anniversary and sixth year within Canada. An emerging market for Matrix is its sport performance and athletic training portfolio. While Matrix Fitness has gained significant momentum in the fitness market, strength and conditioning is evolving, and for that they need to collaborate with some good people. In the second half of 2020, Matrix launched its own Canadian Ambassador Program, a partnership that looks to do exactly that, work with good people who serve athletes. This is an opportunity to be part of a growing and emerging brand in the ever-changing industry of sport performance. For more information on their ambassador program and exploring the details of how it might work for you, please contact the Vice President of Business Development, Greg Lawler. You can contact Greg at Greg Lawler at matrixfitness.com. Yeah, that makes a big difference. When you bring all these people at the, you know, at the center, meeting regularly as much as possible, um, and even having the athletes, you know, at that table, I think that that makes a big difference. It's not just a bunch of people talking about the person and the, the, individu- the individual, it's them being at the table. And I know it's not, you know, feasible all the time, and there's different context, but still, I think that's one thing where maybe some people should do more of it, bringing these athletes into the conversation with the group, right? And and if there's some, you know, delicate topics, um, you know, weight and stuff like that, when you deal with some athletes, well, you, you try to have no white elephant. And, and if there is, you just bring them into the room and talk about it with the athletes. I think that's key with, you know, with the right, obviously, approach to it. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I think that's uh, something that, that makes a big, big, big difference. That they don't do enough. And one thing I was always, you know, something you mentioned when you were dealing with hockey back in the days was that that lack of communication with the athletes, uh, apparently like from the coaching staff and it was just about talking about people but they don't really talk to them and i don't know if mm-hmm. that has changed but it sounded like in the 90s and early 2000 it was the case where coaches don't have that proximity that we do have on the olympic side of things for sure 
Yeah, well, I, you know, it was interesting having that conversation with Brett uh, last week about uh, communication. I mean, that's, <clears throat> to me, even, you know, you can bring all the technology to the table and all the, the practices, but when you start, when an athlete, an athlete is not by themselves. They have to work with people to be successful. So they need to learn to communicate with that group. The coach needs to learn to communicate with that group. That group needs to communicate. Like mm-hmm. a lot of different factors going on there, right? So I think one of the things I've recognized over t- time is that the more you can teach the athletes to learn to be more autonomous, ask good questions, be curious about what they're doing, why they're doing it. There's a certain zone, I think, from, you know, when athletes start to become more competitive at 12, 13, 14, depending on the sport, and then really kind of ratchet it up at the 16 to to 20 zone where, you know, there's sort of their brains are, are changing. They need sort of that direction, that monitoring, that management, that, but then there's this zone from 20 onwards where I think we make the mistake, a lot of coaches make the mistake, a lot of people in the industry make the mistake of not teaching them how to be their own manager of their situation. Mm -hmm. And so I found, I'll get, like, I was literally doing this the other day with a figure skating uh, pair or, or ice dancing pair who you know, are in their ones, the the woman's in her late twenties, the guy's in his early thirties. And Hmm. this idea of managing their team around them and asking questions about why we're doing what we're doing. And it's, it's a foreign reality to them. Yeah. Because coaches get information, do this, do that. Don't question it. Yeah. Ooh, (laughs) that drives me nuts. And, and often it's, not always, but often, definitely, it's you know, coaches uh, a bit insecure. Don't don't want to be asked questions. Don't want to be asked why we do this and why we do that. Where that can lead to a very interesting conversation. And I think coaches and staff need to be more open to that and that collaborative approach. Like, yeah, when you work with a twelve-year-old at one point, there's only so much you can have as far as discussion with planning and training, but. At least, like, the ones you've just mentioned, like, late 20s, early 30s, they've been around, right? Um, so I think that's something that, you know, most people... And it's a, it's, it's within the culture of each sport. And and when you talk about figure skating and ice dancing, it, it makes me think... I uh, don't know why, but I thought about gymnastics, because, you know... It's, uh, and that's also a sport where we've seen so many, like, young athletes' performances over the years, and... 12 year old 13 like being pressed and talk about like just pushing the limit until it breaks and then you go on the volume basis of having so many young girls in this case mainly is it's what we've seen from the you know eastern european countries which was then you know moved and merged into america and it was all about like as young as possible do this do that and then if it breaks we'll go to the next one Right. And what we see now in gymnastics, which I love, is first of all, the athletes are a bit older, kind of like figure skating, actually. That's why I thought about it, where, you know, figure skating lived the same era of having the Oksana Bayul and a few others were like 15 years old and, you know, Olympic champions or 16. And it's like, whoa, this is crazy. And in sport where artistic is important, I, I'm happy to see now that they not only they value, but they appreciate more like the maturity coming into play and seeing like more like women and not like young teenagers, you know, pretending to be, you know, romantic and all sexy on the ice, which is kind of weird and, you know, not cool to, to see uh, to a certain degree. And then, you know, when you see more women coming in and that's what I, I like much more than gymnastics of today and the way they perform, they're mainly in like, you know, they're definitely in their late teens and a lot of them in their early twenties. I think of Ellie black here in Canada, who's our best athlete, who's a contender for Tokyo, um, her team as well. There's a, a lot of young girls coming behind her, but in general, like everybody's in their late teens and we see it with the American team as well. And, you know, Simon Biles is, who's just done like something phenomenal. Like she's done the most difficult trick ever executed just last week, you know? Um, and we thought her prime was, four or even like six years ago well mm. no again because all of this is changing and and thank god it is and i i just think that we just had 
not only the wrong approach, but the wrong belief before, right? It was all about like pressing, pressing as early as possible because that's when the acrobatic athletes or the figure skater can spin faster when, you know, before their puberty almost, which, you know, seems completely silly. Now we look back and like, no, 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 athletes in their 20s and these sports can not only perform well, but perform even better mm-hmm. and have like longer career, which is awesome. We can see them for more than one, you know, Olympic quad. We can start to see them in multiple Olympics. And again, that's all the, the science, the approach, the culture, all of that is contributing to, to what we're seeing now. Yeah. Well, I think it's also the recognition over time that the technical coaches have learned to use the the sports science to better their the way they do things and the organizations have as well. And so you see a betterment for the athletes themselves. But one of the things that I want to encourage the listener, if you're, you're a parent or you're a coach or, or you're an athlete is to advocate for your, if you're a parent advocate for your children. And if you're an athlete advocate for yourself, this idea that you're challenging the coach versus being um, curious about what it is you're doing, the more you're curious, the more the coach, any good coach is going to recognize that curiosity versus you challenging. And if you're challenging out of the blue, well, that sometimes doesn't make a lot of sense, but being curious, being interested in why, what, what are we doing, et cetera. And you got to recognize too. And I mean, you could probably relate to this uh, to a degree because of, of your background, but you know, there's certain coaches where you're coaching, you know, let's say you're coaching the Canadian national freestyle team. You might have six, 10 athletes on the Hill at the same time. Yeah, It's hard for you to intellectually know exactly what each guy should be doing that day. You go out on the Hill with the idea, okay, we're going to do eight runs today as a, as a general sort of consensus on how many runs you want to achieve, what you want to see. Maybe you want to do, do, do some half runs. You maybe want to do one or two top down to top to bottoms, et cetera, et cetera. The individualization of that is, is, is a marriage between a few different things. One is what, how does the athlete feel that day and how are they, how are they producing? What do they want to achieve that day? What do you want to see them achieve that day, et cetera, et cetera. So you might be going out and if, if you're not inquisitive as an athlete and you don't, you know, if I'm going out and Dom's my coach and he says, we're going to do, we're going to try to do eight runs today. This is what I want to try to achieve. If I turn to him and say, you know, coach, uh, we did a great workout yesterday, but I'm a little bit tight today, feeling a little mm-hmm. bit tired. I'm going to feel myself out on the first run. You know, you say, great, have a great run, da 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 So then he comes down to the bottom and says, you know what, I feel amazing. I'm going to try to get another couple of runs in. Okay, go for it. But then he finishes his third, and now he feels that fatigue. And he says, you know what, I had two great runs, coach. What do you think? Uh, I, I'm starting to feel some fatigue. I don't know if I can get in and do what I want to do. You, you turn to him and you go, you know, this is a long season. It's a long year. And you look at him and go, Hey, pull the pin today, or just do just work on X or whatever, you know, and you have that conversation. But if you just go in with coach told me I have to do eight runs today. And now the last four you're doing, you're just basically getting it done. And then on the seventh run, seventh run, you blow your ACL. Boom. Totally. So it's those conversations. If you start to have them as a regular affair, it no longer becomes read by the coach as you're questioning me. It becomes we're having a discussion about what's best for you. One day you're going to do six runs and one day you're going to do three, but we're going to get good quality work out of the day. Does that make sense? Uh, Yeah, because no one at that level is a slacker. Right. Like, I mean, maybe in the junior level, you might need to, you know, kick in the butt a few of them. But in general, once you get to that level of everybody on the World Cup or the the, the top stage of their sports, a coach will mainly need to hold hold them back. Right. You'll Mm -hmm. hold them back. It's not about pushing. Some days, of course, you need the motivation and, and all of that for sure. But, you know, no athletes will just wake up every day and be like, oh, I want to do less today. I want to do less. No, no. If something they all want to do more or else they're the wrong, you know, they have the wrong attitude and won't make it anyway. So to that point, absolutely. That needs to be a conversation a hundred percent. And when they get older, I think that sometimes comes naturally, but I think it should be not only force, but encourage as soon as they make it to to the national teams or the top level of their sport to be working with people who who do have, you know, that conversation with them where they can share how they feel me. Maybe they had a shitty night of sleep. 
and they mm-hmm. just don't feel good that day and they got to tell you right and be oh i'm going to I'm going to try to do the plan because there's a plan. I'm going to stick to the plan. Well, that that often leads to those injuries, as you're saying, right? And I think one great example of that is, uh, you know, very close to you. It's Eric Gay. You know, I think, you know, that's when Eric took control of his career. And Eric's, you know, the, the greatest alpine skier we've had in this country. And I, I hate to say that, but you, we can think back now and kind of like me in the 90s, as I talked earlier, where I blew up my knee because I was just too strong. I think Eric was victim of a bit of that kind of approach of doing more, more, more. And he did blow his knee, blow his knee earlier in the two, year 2000, got multiple different injuries. The program was not fully adapted to him. And I don't think he was adapting either, you know, or integrating himself into that planning. He was more of an athlete that you can tell him to do anything and he's going to do it. He's so mm-hmm. driven and he's a very coachable athlete. But when he became to a certain level after the 2010 Olympics and he, he's older, more mature and starts to reflect, he's like, whoa, wait a second. Like, one, I still have the drive. And two, I feel like my body, if well looked after, can give a lot more. Wow. Once the athletes like that starts to engage in that process, like how pleasant was it to work with him for you? Because when he came here, it was all about, man, I want to work with you, Scotty. And, you know, in a way you wanted to work with him. And it became this amazing partnership in a way that led to, you know, insane results uh, in, in the like in the late part of his career. Like, you know, he was. He was old at the end when we talk, you know, when we compare to previous, you know, uh, athletes and all of that. There's been a few exceptions, but so that's... Well, I think that's the greatest, uh, call it pride recognition for me in, in the work that I've been able to do in my career is these extend, career extension projects that I've, mm-hmm. I've been able to be a part of, whether it was Eric and his career, whether it was Jen and her career, or um, somebody like uh, um, Andre Markov who played for the Habs, who, you know, That's not right. only, you know, he was, a, he was basically going to, his, his career was over. We did a rebuild on, on what was his second ACL. And Andre went on to play another five, six years and actually was an Ironman, like never missed a game other than being asked to sit out for the rest wow. of his career. Like those are the kinds of stories I like to tell because of the, 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 the idea that we can make a better mousetrap, so to speak, that, that is healthier. And my biggest pride for Eric is not that he, that he skied another five, six years and won a world championship. It's that he goes out every winter now and skis with his kids and he's mm-hmm. not in pain. You know, he, he has fun with his three girl, four girls and they're all, you know, he's coaching them and he can do that because he didn't, blow himself to pieces he took care of his body and, and is able to do those things now that or retire in 2011 which or when i see you know i see you and jen up doing you know these mountain these the, all the stuff that you guys do with your your boys and stuff like to be able to have retired from the type of career that jen has had or had and have healthy knees and a healthy body and be able to do the things that she wants to do yeah i mean not without little things here and there but fundamentally yeah. you know like she could have been left with you know big scars and injuries and things that she would have had to deal with and i think that's a, a huge you know proposition of that style or approach of of training that you know these athletes not only have longer careers but then they have life after career and mm-hmm. success after career and i think that's key totally yeah and then you know maybe to to to, to finish off on that longevity um part of it when i think of you know those those success and when you see them you know there's kind of a you're inspired by that obviously as an athlete and and more than inspired i think it it sends the message down like whoa okay we we can perform much later rather than always it being a number where okay like at that sport you know after 32 you know let's say it's cross-country skiing you know past 34 like you'll perform until 30 31 then it's for sure known after 34 you'll you'll start to go down or then you'll move from a sprinter to more endurance and there's these things that are just numbers out there right and yeah they're based on on some data but now that we we see that it's possible i bet you the athletes who, who let's say a sport the average retirement age is 27 that's it. that's that's the sport i was in oh so suddenly you're 25 well, okay, yeah, I have two more years or three. So that plays in your conscious. Like you're, 
you're, you're putting yourself down. You think, okay, I'll be done because that's what it is. You're always done at that age. And, and then, you know, I'm sure you would have a number X for hockey and you know, number Y for another sport. And now I think by seeing these, you know, Serena Williams, Tom Brady, this, that, and Phil Mickelson this weekend, everybody's now like, oh, wait a second. That, that, that number, that X, that Y, it's, it's just an average. But, you know, it's not something I should plan my career around maybe, right? Like we should start thinking, well, maybe I can be a gymnast and win the Olympics at 27 because we see them getting older and older now. And mm -hmm. that's what's to me exciting is I think the next generation who see all these athletes winning in their 40s and now 50s. Uh, and you could say it's golf, but I'm, I'm sorry, but yes, golf, you know, will allow for later performances for sure. But I'm sorry, uh, Scotty and the people listening, like I went to hit balls last week, <laughs> not last week, sorry, last year, and I haven't played in a while. I was a wreck. Okay. Like my back was hurting and this and that, like, of course, if you play and you get used to it, but my point is that it's more a sport than people would like to oh, give yeah. it the credit to, right? Like Absolutely. you don't get hit by, you know, someone coming in, you know, at 40 K an hour on skates in the corner. And, but it's still a sport where, you know, Now someone that's 50 can claim that he's won like one of the best tournament, the greatest tournament. It, sorry, but it's, it's not nothing. No. And it's not just, well, it's golf. You can do it. It's kind of like, you know, same thing we had, like, uh, you know, the, the F1 athletes back in the days. Oh yeah. They're not athletes. They're driver. Like, wait a second. Like they're serious athletes, like athletes, like golfers, sorry, are serious athletes as well. Some sport will allow maybe 10 more years of it. Sure. But now I think regardless of the sport, The limits are being pushed. People are performing later for many reasons, as we've discussed in the last, you know, 50, 55 minutes. And, and to me, this is exciting. And we can plan our careers differently, I hope, mm -hmm. when we see things like that. Yeah, I, def I, I totally agree with you. I, I don't think that they should, any athlete should feel that there's a, there's a cap. There's a time limit or a cap. Uh, you know, if I, was, if I was to give a few, you know, personals, call it advice to the athlete listening is to recognize that you're an individual and the mm -hmm. more you, you need to find what works for you and to keep modifying that based on time ticking. So you made a really great point earlier that what you do at 20 isn't what you should be doing when you're 28 because you don't need to do as much work to get the to get the better results at this point. Mm -hmm. You've put in that time, you've put in that effort. I think that's the thing that doesn't get done enough in life and in this kind of thing is that self-evaluation, that self-reflection. Where am I now? What do I want to achieve? What do I have to do to achieve that? How much do I have to do? So this self-autonomy, this self-assessment, this self-engagement, rather than I'm just going to go to practice and I'm going to do what the coach is telling me to do. And, and not one day I'll wake up and I can't do it anymore. And then my career is going to be over. And I think that's where, you know, When you look at the Tom Brady's and you look at the Phil Mickelson's and you look at the, you know, whether it's the Drew Breeses, and I know Drew Breeses' uh, co strength coach myself, like um, these guys, they take care of themselves, but they're engaged in taking care of themselves. Mm -hmm. Like they're, they're engaged in their process. They're engaged in what, the why of what they're doing. Their, their training changes from year to year based on their age changing, what they need to do, what they need to achieve. And that would be my biggest piece of advice to anybody listening is you are not, you are an individual who needs to find what works for them. And your whole goal while you're doing what you're doing is to, is to refine it. Just keep refining it. Totally. Yeah. I'll leave it at that, Scotty. Beautiful, buddy. That's the key to success. La Fontaine de Jouvence. C'est ça. Yeah. Mon homme. Yeah, no, like, don't, don't listen to numbers too much do your things like yeah. you know age is just a suggestion they say and have fun mm. yeah have fun oh we, we could talk about that fun <laughs> is part of the process <laughs> on the next episode with Norman and scott <laughs> <laughs> all right buddy good job thank you very yeah, much as have a usual great day. take care bye-bye Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. 
Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Payne and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.